Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, an in-depth look at the growing homeless encampment in Minneapolis, an autism self-advocacy summit, and a chat with iconic singer Art Garfunkel ahead of his concert in Rochester. But first... Minneapolis city leaders recently announced a plan to relocate hundreds of men, women, and children, mostly American Indian and homeless, to better, more reliable shelter and away from what has become a growing encampment lined with tents near Hiawatha Avenue. The goal is to move people before the cold weather sets in. Director of the Office to End Homelessness in Hennepin County, David Hewitt, says clearly that is easier said than done. An encampment of this scale is new. Um... At least, at least it is in this city. Unsheltered homelessness has been a, a, going on for years, and I mean it's always uh, a challenging environment. Uh, there are some people where it takes multiple attempts to get them into housing, and the timing is so critical when you're uh, faced with so many other issues as well. Um, whether it's a historical trauma, substance use disorder, mental health. Uh, there are a whole number of, of barriers uh, to getting people connected to programs. And, um, I mean, the work that the outreach workers here do, um, St. Stephen's, the American Indian Community Development Corporation, is really about trying to get people to that place where they can take up opportunities when they present themselves. Uh, but it's, it's hard work. Though several outreach programs near the encampment are being offered, including shower access, housing assessment support, and limited health services, Marin Hardy with the American Indian Community Development Corporation says, What we are missing are people here to do the Rule 25s. A Rule 25 is a chemical assessment for people in addiction or alcoholism. A lot of the, that's why a lot of people are over there. A lot of them can get into treatment if they've had a Rule 25, which they haven't had. And so we need to get that done, and we need people here to do that. That's huge. That seems like a key missing piece. Why are those folks not here? Why are they not here? And another question, who's not here? Treatment centers. Where's the treatment centers? Where's the Eden House, the Park Avenue, Jules Fairbanks? They need to be here. I just, I'm in, I've been in recovery myself for years, and I question that. It's like, a lot of the reasons why people are over there is because of their addictions. And I, you wouldn't believe how many people have come to me and asked me, I want a Rule 25 right now. I took a girl over this morning to Fairview to get locked up. I took her the other day. They didn't have a bed for her. She's a heroin addict, shooting, doing at least a gram, shooting it up at least a gram a day. I think that hospitals should have beds set aside just for heroin addicts. What do you do when people uh, come here desperate for help and you don't have anywhere to bring them? I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. I, I personally know a lot of these people. The girl that I just brought in this morning, I'm like her auntie, and I've known her for, since she was 14. She's got twins. She's got three kids, twins now that are in foster care. And it's, when she walked up to this table and said, can you take me, I dropped everything I was doing. I made sure someone was here to sit here. I walked her over to get her stuff, and we drove over to Fairview. We couldn't get her, and I sat with her, and then we drove over to her mom's. And I picked her up again this morning. Now, granted, she left again to dose a couple times because she was so sick. But she's over there right now, hopefully in a bed. Alex Cross heads Natives Against Heroin. He says the people at the encampment may be homeless, but... We can have great time out here in a community setting, right? We got it from the babies, from my five months old, all to the elders. 
So we got to make sure that they understand and they're learning every day that it's a community. This is not any but anything but a community. It, like Mayor Fry said, it was a stolen Dakota land. Today we're reclaiming it. Today we're claiming it. So what we're doing, what we're doing, you know, like you say, you see, you see that um, we're putting up the teepees. The teepee is the symbol of home, and it sits on Dakota land. We won't stay here at the wall if the city comes through as they promise. Our people deserve better, but we won't back down if they don't. Right? So we're we're showing them. We're ready for make sure that these people have a warm setting that we know we can survive in. So we we're just hoping that the city understands that a movement will protect our people because it is made from the people for the people. Karen Pacheco was at the encampment. She had been taking care of her granddaughter after her daughter's death when she says she was wrongly evicted from her apartment. I never did get back in even though I had a court order. And in the meantime, they took every belonging we owned and put it in a dumpster and cleared out our apartment. All my dead daughter's stuff. We have nothing. So we came to the camp. These are our people. And uh, people know me. I am the daughter of a spiritual leader of this community. She's passed away. And she was an activist. And I grew up this way. So um, I do know my path is to help, but we have helped. Me and my granddaughter have housed 100 people ourselves in the last year. I don't let people sleep outside, especially in the winter. Not, I don't let natives sleep outside. If I got room on my floor, I've had three three levels of people sleeping, and they know they can come, and I'm gonna have food, or, or peanut butter and jelly, something. And um, yeah, I was talking to a man just this morning, because I've had a bad day. <laughs> And he goes, it's rough out here, isn't it? He goes, that's why we all came to your house. It was safe, and you fed us, and you were good to us. And um, so that's why I'm here. And I'm still fighting, and um, and now I'm organizing because it's gotten so big. You know, yesterday we had our first elders council meeting. We have to have some order um, because it's 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 crazy. I'll have more on the Hiawatha encampment when Minnesota Matters returns. You, my friend, have connections in the government. Yes, you. USA.gov, the official source for government information on thousands of topics. And like any good connection, there's no telling where it can take you. Why, one day you're getting student loan information. Next thing you know, you need job hunting tips. Today's road construction info could have you searching for telecommuting ideas tomorrow. The more you use USA.gov, the more uses you'll find for it. Passport applications, for example. They've been known to lead to a sudden interest in travel advisories. Our new mobile apps will even update you on the go. So whether you have information to get or ideas to give your government, check out USA.gov. Who knows? Lottery results today could lead to retirement planning tomorrow. USA.gov. With the right connections, there's no telling where you can go. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, back with more on the Hiawatha Encampment. 
Karen Pacheco is skeptical that everyone at the encampment will be relocated under such an aggressive timeline. Well, for one, if you had shelter for all these people, we wouldn't all be out here. Right. The homeless, you know, it isn't there's some I mean, there are some homeless people aren't going to do shelters because I've heard they're terrible and they're scary and they split up families. And and, you know, um, uh, I go to the city council meetings. I crash them because we are not invited. I don't see anyone up there who's come visited. You have not come talk to us and ask what we need and what we want. Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry says city leaders have been engaging with local American Indian leaders since the beginning of the encampment and... They've been involved with us every step of the way in the planning process and they will continue to be. I mean, we make, we've made these decisions together. John Tribbett with the St. Stephen's Street Outreach Team is also skeptical of the plan to find shelter for everyone at the encampment. At its high point, the estimates are up to 300 people in this space. It is unrealistic based upon the resources available, whether it's service providers, county resources, and most importantly, housing resources, to think that 300 people within two to three weeks are going to be housed. Asked what happens to the people who don't find new shelter or are not relocated by October, Tribbett says... So that's that's kind of a tricky question. There, there's been a lot of talk out of the mayor's office about creating some, some innovative shelters, and I think we have a lot of very creative people in our community. We have a lot of people within the Native American community that uh, have the, the, the ability and the skill sets to address the issue if they're supported by the community at large. Um, so um, I think it's going to be you know, very difficult to say for sure where people are going to go. Um, but a lot of people, if they don't find temporary emergency shelter, emergency not permanent housing, or get into housing uh, are going to likely end up in the other places in the city that we continuously find people residing unsheltered. Karen Pacheco says there's a long-standing precedent for the current situation off of Hiawatha. Well, as you as you notice, it's mostly Native. Okay, that is not a coincidence. We have been on the short end of resources um, since the beginning of the United States. Um, families. Uh, there's a tent worth of uh, with uh, parents, the man's in a wheelchair and their daughter has cerebral palsy, is in a wheelchair. They've been there a month. We've had housing assessments come through, St. Stephen's, uh, their housing programs, everybody's been there. They couldn't find them a place. We got two wheelchairs in a tent. A young girl with cerebral palsy. And all these resources, they're still there. They've been there a month. Are you kidding me? Tell me, Minneapolis ain't got enough money. They couldn't do something for this family. And there's nowhere to go. Though there is a sense of community at the encampment, the reality is there are safety concerns. There have been overdoses, one fatal, and earlier this month, 26-year-old Alyssa Skip in the day had an asthma-related medical incident at the site. She was taken to the hospital but later died. Karen Pacheco says blaming the encampment setting is missing the point. The the headline said, uh, you know, there's more questions alarming about the encampment when woman dies. She had asthma. Guess what? She was homeless long before the camp started. Maybe if she had a home, she wouldn't have died. Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry has frequently said housing is his top priority, and he says the encampment... It highlights the need. It highlights the crisis in a way that perhaps it's been hidden before, uh, and it hopefully brings forth a collective recognition that... Um, 
that we can't treat our homeless population as if they're invisible. Um, we need a, an approach that's compassionate uh, and respects the dignity of human beings every step of the way, and that's what we're trying for. And yes, we're doing things a little bit differently than how they've been done in the past, but um, I think that shift in mentality has been necessary. Marin Hardy with the American Indian Community Development Corporation says the attention the encampment is getting is good, but attention is not enough, and she's concerned. A lot of people have passed judgment as they're watching this on the news from their bed, from their living room, not from a tent with no electricity. My thing is, reach in your heart and ask yourselves, how can I help if that was me? What would I want done? Maybe you know someone who owns a house down here. Maybe you can build things. I mean, what I would love to see the container homes built. So maybe you can offer your time, your resources, your materials to these families in this community. This is a, we're a Native American community that's not going to leave this area. We've been here forever. Again, the forgotten people. But if we can reach as a community as a whole to come together to build the small homes, the tiny homes, the container homes, that would be amazing. There's plenty of empty lots here. There's plenty of homes that are abandoned that we can fix up. There's people in the state who can offer their resources and their talents to what they do to help this community. I mean, this is all these people over here are someone's brother, father, son, mother, daughter. More needs to be done as a people. If you're struggling with or know someone who is struggling with homelessness, support and resources are available by calling 211. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. This weekend, the Autism Society of Minnesota is debuting an event for those with autism to come together and gather information and resources. While the event is open to all, reporter J.W. Cox tells us organizers built the first annual Awesome Self-Advocacy Summit for one particular underserved target group. That's right, Scott. Autism Society Executive Director Ellie Wilson told me they curated Saturday's event with a specific audience in mind. Those who are approaching adulthood or who are already adults who are diagnosed on the spectrum or with similar disorders, a lot of the strategies that we're going to be talking about are totally applicable whether or not your exact diagnosis is autism. I think that there is some space and availability for people who support those on the spectrum, but a lot of the content is really geared to be to that direct direct audience um, of autistic people who are looking to network and looking to learn some strategies that they can start applying in their life the second they leave the summit. Wilson says they saw a direct need that led them to pioneer this first-of-its-kind event. This is an event that's really geared towards improving the community integration and success and prosperity of adults on the spectrum. So that's really important because many people sort of fall under the misconception that autism is a childhood disorder, um, which is really not true. And to have a lot of content that's geared towards supporting those who are in transition age, which means sort of approaching adulthood, 
um, into the mid and late stages of adulthood is just incredibly important. There's a, a lot of lack of support for that part of the population, not just in Minnesota, but everywhere. Goal number one, though, for the society is to empower the attendees wherever they are in the spectrum with information. We're looking at advocacy at a really sort of broad level. So we will be looking at political advocacy. We'll be talking about a couple of different pieces of legislation um, to better inform our advocates on the spectrum. But we're also looking at advocacy in the broader sense of the word. How do I advocate for myself as an autistic person in relationships, in my job, in my community, in my family. So a lot of the topics are geared towards that self-promotion across all contexts, which is really special. But Wilson said they will tackle topics with a much more localized and personal impact. We're also going to hear about people who choose to be in romantic relationships. We're going to talk about sensory management and how that can affect our ability to participate in community events. We're going to talk about something called executive function, which is actually a pretty common challenge for lots of people on the spectrum and also for lots of people who are not on the spectrum. But executive function has to do with essentially how our brain cohesively sort of multitask is about building the skills that have to do with things like time management and planning and sequence, which of course are all skills that are highly related to how we all perform in our jobs, which is going to be really important. We're going to talk about employment and post-secondary education and goal setting around those areas, services around those areas. Um, We're going to talk about anxiety, um, the high relationship between anxiety and autism and some techniques for dealing with some of those disorders as well. And then finally, we're going to have some content that's really just geared towards improving personal friendships and relationships of any kind, whether those are romantic or familial or acquaintances or whatever it is. Lots of people on the spectrum appreciate the opportunity to talk about strategy to improve their relationships. In the end, Wilson and everyone connected to the event want to provide actionable steps that can be put into place by attendees immediately. A, acknowledging that these are topics that are important and and sort of need attention. We definitely want to set an example amongst our fellow advocates and organizations who are now recognizing that this is a population that's really underserved. So hosting these topics in the first place, we hope, is trend-setting. <laughs> um, and then on top of that, something I'm really proud of with Autism Society is we're very, very well informed of you know, the different parts of autism um, that affect the very broad spectrum in lots of different ways. But we really, really value that practicality. Um, And so if we're going to spend time with anybody, no matter who we're teaching, we always want to focus on what are the things that really matter to people's lives. Wilson says she hopes the intentional and meticulous planning that went into the event will set it apart and make the summit even more impactful and make it happen again next year. A lot of our speakers are on the spectrum themselves. A lot of our content was decided on by people who are all on the spectrum Um, So we really think this is going to be a genuinely great resource for those who are seeking this kind of support and ideas and networking. Um, And we're going to have lots of opportunities when they come. In in addition to our regular programming, they're also going to have access to some local resources that we think are 
outside of our organization. Wilson hopes the awesome self-advocacy summit year one will be a connection to all of the society's support programming that happens on a daily and weekly basis. We have a statewide annual conference at the end of April each year. And then we actually, April is Autism Awareness Month, so we're like chock-a-bock full of events during that time. Um, and then we have these regular monthly check-ins. We also have a ton of adult programming that's just meant to be a social experience. Um, and we hope to connect more people to all of those programs throughout the year. For more information on those resources, visit AUSM.org. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, JW. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Don't you wish that getting your child to eat right, move more, and spend less time in front of a screen could be as easy as pushing a button? It might not be that simple, but you do have more power than you know. And you can maximize that power with proven strategies, tips, and tools from the National Institutes of Health's We Can, or Ways to Enhance Children's Activity and Nutrition program. We Can offers all kinds of resources, including fun recipes and activities the family can do together to show you the way to live a healthier lifestyle. We're not saying it's easy. We are saying that it can be done. Take the first step today. Call 1-866-359-3226 for a free We Can Parents Handbook. And be sure to visit the We Can website at wecan.nhlbi.nih.gov for free information, too. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. For more than half a century, Art Garfunkel's angelic voice has offered comfort to fans of popular music around the world. Incredibly, several years ago, Garfunkel lost his voice, which led to the cancellation of a planned Simon and Garfunkel reunion tour. But now, Garfunkel's voice is back, and so is he, touring the country with a stop this week in Rochester, Minnesota. I recently chatted with the iconic singer about finding his voice, hitting the highs and lows, and much more. How are you, and how is your voice doing? Well, every day is different. I'm, <laughs> I'm an up and down kind of guy. I am uh, I'm doing good. I'm very grateful for all the things that are going good in my life. The voice has been back now for a few years. It's at my command, and it's so much fun to sing. And uh, my family is thriving. My two boys, my older boy, Arthur Jr., is home from Germany. He's been here for a couple of months now. Uh, my youngest boy is entering the seventh grade. That fills me with trembling concern. A new seventh grader. Ooh. So I, I trail along with him as he goes to school with my heart in my sleeve, hoping that he's comfortable. That's a big part of my life, little Bo, B-E-A-U. My wife and I will be married 30 years, 30 years later this month. Congratulations. Thank you. We'll take it. You mentioned that the, the voice is good. You've, you've got it back. It was gone for a little while, and obviously it's such a big part of what you are known and appreciated for. How did you deal with losing your voice for a while? I was depressed. I had to invent my own self-created mending process. I, rem- I, I thought first I am not going to accept that I no longer sing. That's like saying I am no longer a person. I am this person. I sing. I've been doing it since I was five. So I was committed to finding some way to 
bringing it back. And I went through a whole process. I, I rested and then I sang in my earphones along to my uh, old, uh, to my iPod, certain singers I unison along with. I love Chet Baker. I booked, I booked a house with an empty th- thousand seats just so I could get on mic and sing, even though the voice wasn't back, and test it out with nobody in the house. And it was awful. <laughs> I had no voice. And I was saying, this is really going to be a couple of years. This is 2010, 11, 12, Scott. By 2012, I was starting to try some shows in front of people, and it was half there. And then in the next year or so, I, I found that if you kick yourself in the ass and force yourself, you pretend that you're already back together again, then you soon are. In other words, if you take the pose of complete, you get complete. Isn't that interesting? It is. I think, uh, I think there's something to that. What can folks expect from your show here coming up uh, in Rochester? Well, they're going to see an ancient Artie Garfunkel. They see a guy who, somewhere in the show they're going to go, he's really, he's really committed to this. Look how many decades he's been doing this. He's, an, uh, he's a vocal artist, not a Clapton guitar artist. Not a, he's not a band. He's not a singer-songwriter, although I... Uh, well, uh, he's a singer. He makes this, the act of singing the art form, and watch him go through the nuances of these songs. Half of them are Simon and Garfunkel. Half of them come from my solo albums, and, and, and some things are not on either category. They're just songs I want to do. And uh, I will try and make the act of singing uh, <laughs> thrill you. You talk. Then I do about about thirty percent of my show is this autobiography I've put out. They are prose poems. They make my life. They're little poignant pieces that last uh, half a minute or a minute. I'll give you a few of them between the songs, and they'll set up the songs. And you, hopefully, you'll say he's become a writer. Do you remember uh, recording Bridge Over Troubled Water? And, uh, you know, I, I talked about the, the pressure of performing that live, but obviously you, it was one for the ages. Is there anything that stands out in your mind from that particular recording session when you put that vocal down? It didn't happen in one night, Scott. It happened in, Cal- in Los Angeles and in New York over about six different recording sessions. One song, one vocal performance. I don't want to ruin it for you. No, that's okay. But I am finicky, and I was going after a vision, and I kept, uh, I kept at it. I had the um, last verse done. It's three verses. The last verse, the, the big, the big one came easiest. I pole vaulted over the top note and surprised myself with the with the fun of it all. The middle verse was easy because you wanted to just put uh, a nervous energy that sets uh, it's everything the last verse is, but held back. But the first verse was so elusive. Gosh, Scott, I, I really worked to get the first verse as delicate as I wanted it to be. As our conversation came to an end, I asked Garfunkel what it meant to him to have the love and appreciation of fans for so many years. I take it in as real and lovely, and it becomes the uh, devotion. My life is devoted to to giving them that if they're going to say thank you in such a sweet sincerity. It's a circuit. It's lovely, and it remains just what it always was, this circuit. 
It doesn't really change. It, I relax through the years so I can really feel the love and express mine more and more. That changes. I get out of my own way, and I, I take in the beauty of the exchange more and more as time goes by. Very good. Well, we're very much looking forward to having you performing in town here. I've been a fan of, of yours for so long. It's just a, a real pleasure to be able to have a conversation with you. I really enjoyed it. That was really a pleasure, truly. Thank you to my very special guest, Art Garfunkel. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station. 